Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Cindy and Chrissy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with changing the ideals and expectations of motherhood. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about. All while hanging with your mom friends. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Her Health Collective's expert panel is a collaborative effort between women's health experts from a variety of different industries who are dedicated to working together to better serve the women in our community. Through our efforts as an organization and working closely with our team of experts, we aim to improve postpartum care so that women are receiving the care they need and deserve. This year, we are working on four key initiatives, all geared around our mission of health, empowerment, and respect for every mom. The roundtable discussion today is specific to the topic of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. If you ask any expert who works with moms or ask a mom who has been directly affected, they'll say that we have a system that is not adequately caring for our mothers and their mental health. According to Postpartum Support International, or PSI, while many women experience mild mood changes during or after the birth of a child, 15 to 20% of women experience more significant symptoms of depression or anxiety. Undiagnosed and untreated perinatal mental health disorders are a silent health crisis in the United States, deserving national recognition and action to save lives and improve the health and well-being of America's mothers, babies, fathers, families, and the community. So today we have several of our 2021 Her Expert panelists with us to unpack perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and They're also here to share insights within their own respective industries on this topic. I'd like to introduce Emily Chaffee. She is fertility and birth doula. Emily, if we could just have you say hi so people can hear your voice. Hi, I'm Emily, and I am, like Cindy said, a birth doula, fertility doula, childbirth educator, so all the things around birth and postpartum. Great. Thank you. Blair Cuneo. Physician's assistant. Blair, could you just jump in and say hi? Hi, I'm Blair Cunio, work at a functional medicine clinic looking at all the aspects of health for women, including their lifestyle and biologically, since if there's any system inflammation. Thank you so much. Catherine Andrews is a registered dietitian nutritionist with lots of areas of specialty. Catherine, can you pop on? Yes. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I'm Catherine Andrew. I'm a registered dietitian and I do what I consider functional nutrition work. So I think about the whole body, not just look through the lens of food, but how we're helping nourish someone from all angles of health. Wonderful. So glad you're here. And we have Sharice Johnson. Sharice is a clinical mental health therapist, counselor, consultant, and educator. Sharice, will you pop on and say hi? Hi, I'm Cherise, and apparently I am doing way too much when you list it all like that, which is totally fine. I'm located in Charlotte, North Carolina, and much like many of the other individuals on the panel, I definitely work from an integrative approach. So just really helping everyone figure out how all of these dots connect so we don't miss anything. 
We love that. Looking at the whole woman, the whole mom. And we're just going to go and dive right into our first question. We're so glad you're here. Thanks, everyone. Yes, thank you all so much. I know this is going to be a wonderful conversation. It's important to us, to Her Health Collective, to Cindy and I, that we are moving this conversation forward and we are talking about perinatal mental health. We feel it is important to bring awareness to perinatal mental health conditions. As many as 20 to 25% of women will experience some type of perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Many women go undiagnosed and without help, even though they feel like something just isn't quite right, symptoms can develop anytime within pregnancy and throughout the first year after childbirth. Without treatment, the symptoms can last much longer. I believe I just recently read a study where it said they're even putting it out as far now as three years postpartum. We're going to go ahead and just point this question to Blair first, and then we'd love to hear from our other panelists after she's had an opportunity to answer. Blair, would you please talk to us about the symptoms that a woman may experience and how they are different from the baby blues. Often women can go undiagnosed because there's some uncertainty there between is this just the normal baby blues that happen postpartum or is this something more severe? Right, exactly. Yeah, the more striking difference with um, the difference between baby blues and postpartum mood disorders, and we'll speak a lot probably about postpartum depression because there's just more studies on it. Baby blues is going to last for days to weeks postpartum, and we're going to have some emotional shifts. We're happy, we're crying, we're, we're proud of ourselves, we're bidding ourselves up, you know, kind of overwhelmed, not kind of, we're overwhelmed. And there might, in that fatigue component, we might not be taking care of ourselves the way that we want to because we're just exhausted. So maybe a little more irritable, anxious, overwhelmed, and having those emotional um, fluctuations. Postpartum depression, on the other hand, Let's take that to the extreme and then prolong for how long the mom is experiencing it. So instead of these episodes of this occasional sadness, we're just seeing a deeper, more profound feeling sad, worthless, feeling alone, feeling hopeless, and you're crying more often. Don't feel like you're doing a good job as mom to this new baby. And you're also potentially not bonding with the child. There's difficulty caring for yourself with eating, sleeping, and caring for the child. And this can manifest even into anxiety and panic attacks. And there can be, we'll see maybe an increased concern that there should be raised for a healthcare provider or even a patient and their family when there is a history of either having depression and anxiety before becoming pregnant if there's a family history of um, mental disturbances in the family. And if you did need to discontinue any type of antidepressant or anti-anxiety support before the pregnancy. So those symptoms of sadness, restlessness, agitation, difficulty thinking, lack of that bond, really just these more extreme baby blues but it needs to be taken seriously by providers that the woman's not going to, you know, just come out of it and they need additional support. I would also like to add that the postpartum depression is not just a more severe form of baby blues. They're two very different aspects. And, you know, not saying that baby blues is normal by any means, but it affects much more people. I think it's like 80% of postpartum people experience baby blues. And postpartum depression also equally as prevalent, 
but they're not related in the sense that more extreme of the other. The Motherhood Center of New York states that seven in 10 women may hide or downplay their symptoms. And speaking from personal experience, I did this. I had postpartum anxiety and I had my six week postpartum visit and they gave me the form and I saw the answer that I knew I should be bubbling. I knew what was true and what was real. And I felt that it would mean I was failing the test and I was failing motherhood. And I skewed my answer in the direction that I knew was the healthier response, healthier in the sense of that's what people are looking for to say that you're not experiencing any mental health issues. So we know that this is something that is happening. This decision, this, this action that I took and that many women take can have an impact on the mother, the baby, the partner, and the entire family unit. Sharice, we would love to start with you on this one. As a mental health expert, would you talk to us a bit about why a woman might feel she needs to hide how she's feeling when answering these types of questions and what consequences, both immediate and long-term, might result from that decision Mm -hmm. and not receiving that adequate support and treatment? Sure. Yeah, there are a lot of different reasons why women may decide to hide. You mentioned one of them, which is, I don't want to feel like I've failed. So there can be a lot of shame around, I've never felt this before for some, right? Some might have a background history, but some may feel, I've never experienced this before. It can be minimized. So the other aspect of that is what people consider severe for an individual can be subjective. So we're very good at convincing ourselves, it's not that bad, we'll get over it or I felt this before, it usually goes away is something that I often hear. I thought it would go away. Then we add, if there's a mom that has multiple children, she may also feel like I don't have time to address this right now. So I don't want to clue people in that are going to try and change things for me or make me do things differently because I need this to be the focus and just a lot of shame and doubt And the other piece that I'll add that we don't often think about is when a mother is also has the presence of either a spouse that has a different mindset around mental health or even grandparents who may come from a different generation, it's minimized. So when they attempt to disclose to someone that they know and love, they may hear, you're fine. This is normal. Every mother goes through this. And so that also creates that tug of war of, am I being phatic? Am I making this bigger than what it is? And then they doubt what they know to be true. So immediate consequences can vary. You alluded to one of them, which it can be very difficult to bond with your child or to even feel present. So you have someone who's kind of working and going through the motions of taking care of their family while having this inner battle along the way. And then long-term, some of the consequences can be an increase in severity and not recognizing how things are continuing to get worse. I've even worked with individuals who had started off as anxiety, their system, their nervous system crashed, that headed them into depression, still hid that. And then they even moved into some passive suicidality. Not uncommon for moms to feel maybe everybody would be better off without me. I can't do anything right. And yet, I don't want to tell anyone I'm trying to be positive and get back up the next day. So one of the most concerning aspects is it can continue to become co-occurring, switch presentations, and then intensify. And so by the time we do get to someone, 
there's a lot more to unravel and deal with. I didn't add, add into that also in the ability of trying to cope, potentially reaching for substances, alcohol, drugs, as that maybe secret rescue. And so inviting in behaviors to try to soothe when they don't feel safe or welcome or justified in getting professional help. Speaking of getting professional help, a lot of times when a mom is dealing with all these things and maybe doesn't know the best place to turn or where to go for help, but she knows something isn't right, something has to change, she might seek out different avenues. Um, And this is directed towards Catherine right now. We know you deal a lot with functional nutrition and a lot of new moms do seek out the help of nutritionists. When you have a mom come to you speaking about their overall health, but they are presenting with some of these other signs and symptoms of mental health struggles, where do you come in and how can you help and where do you send them for help? Great question. You know, I think a lot of moms come to me, sadly, as I think about women experiencing postpartum depression or anxiety, so much of it, you know, is this pressure to get back to my, my mom before baby weight. I think that compounds the problem, right? That we kind of feel like we should have a baby and then return to life as was before, both emotionally and physically and all these other aspects. So sadly, many people aren't coming to me because they feel off. They're coming to me because they want their body back or they want to see that baby weight go away. And I think so much of of sort of the resistance in some ways to even weight loss and weight and body change is the fact that their mind is trapped in this place that they don't really know how to deal with. So I would say I work with a lot of women who are experiencing these things, but have no idea. So my approach is to kind of gently listen and talk to them and help them maybe even think for themselves that something isn't right beyond my body, my physical body, that something might be not right emotionally or that I'm not feeling well, that there could be more to the story than simply I need to lose weight or I need to diet harder or I'm doing something wrong. So I would say the first answer to that question is that I refer out to brilliant other people, especially people like Sharice and therapists. I have a list of 40 different therapists in our area and nationally as well now, since I see people outside of Raleigh that I can send people to. And I think it's so important to help then talk them through finding the right fit. So even encouraging them to go back to someone else if that first visit wasn't exactly what they were looking for, but to keep shopping, to keep working and really advocating for their health in that way. So that's something that I often even start conversations with is talking more about their mental health and their emotional health and what's going on in their life, helping them feel safe and helping them feel like they're in a space where they can talk about it, but recognizing that It's not my specialty. There are ways that I can support them and help them nourish themselves, but also to make sure that they're seeking help where they can. It's so beautiful to hear our professionals relying on each other and referring to other professionals. That's such a a great support system to have for the moms out there. Postpartum depression is mostly the most well-known of the mood and anxiety disorders. However, some of the less talked about conditions, I'm going to list them right now. A few of them include postpartum anxiety, postpartum obsessive compulsive disorder, postpartum bipolar disorder, and postpartum psychosis. In your specific industry, when a woman presents with symptoms of concern for any of the aforementioned, the previously mentioned 
conditions. How do you support her? Catherine discussed a little bit about how she supports. We'd love to hear from some of the other professionals here on how you'd go about doing that. This is Blair. Um, in addition to, yeah, exactly, Catherine, that next call is to your, the, the network of amazing counselors that we have. You really want to begin helping that woman build her tribe of support. And that there can be that stigma to reaching out to someone who has got, you know, their eagle walls of the diplomas and sitting down that can be really scary. So maybe it becomes, well, on your comfort level, does that look like a baby and me yoga class? I'll speak from personal experience that I found the prenatal and postnatal community to be, the, the yoga was a little part of it. The bigger part was the time spent before and after class, supporting each other, talking about diaper fails, and just being there. And so first helping that woman recognize the, the, the team and the tribe that she might already have and the one that she deserves and how it can be empowering to just sit down with other women to feel supported and also validated in what she's experiencing. And, you know, when you just have to look at someone, they know that you had, you're on no sleep and everything. It just, it means a lot. I also find that as far as when they're coming to me in this general wellness, you know, they just haven't been feeling off ever since. And something that we do in our intake with our patients is we're tracking how someone is feeling in relationship timeline of events in their life. And from our approach, we're looking at biologically what is happening. And sometimes it can be so nice to hear, it's not, you're, it's not that you're not trying hard enough. It's not that it hasn't been the perfect diet, the perfect exercise and sleep. There can be a lot of factors that are making you swim upstream, whether it's genetics on board, or some people aren't aware how foods can be inflammatory or hard on their system and how unique we can be in that aspect. But then also there's an amazing transformation that is happening in a woman's body on the endocrine system front with pregnancy and postnatal. Cortisol is literally surging more and more and more throughout the length of the pregnancy. We are being embraced and loving our high progesterone, which is soothing us. And then we just have crashes. We have progesterone lack. We have cortisol drops. And not everyone's resilience and bouncing back is going to be the same. And so sometimes even just objective testing of saying, wow, these things are inflamed in your system. This hormone level is low can help women have that grace of like, it's not, I didn't have to white knuckle through this. I really have something. And it can be validating to the people in their life, their partner to say, do you see this? I'm not making this up. Or even to just have that support of a healthcare provider, maybe didn't need the testing, but just to say what you are going through needs help and needs attention and needs support. Yeah. And I will add, this is Sharice, in some parallels that one of the basic things that I do right from the beginning is also commend their courage. And just to really acknowledge, I can't even imagine what it took for you to get to this point because we can underestimate how many appointments they may have made and then canceled. The fact that they needed to bring a child, I will often as well allow them to bring their little one with them because a huge barrier can be they can't get help because there isn't anyone to watch their child. And so if there is a provider who doesn't allow children, all of those things add overwhelm to already what they're experiencing. I actually have in my office a little basket filled with just baby things that are for those one and under. So they also feel very comfortable 
you know, letting the baby down and we have a little area and that can seem uh, small, but that's a big deal just to know like, hey, we're, we're all here. Very similar to what Blair mentioned, validating their experience and helping them recognize how these things can take place and how common they are. And then the other piece of that is getting them to separate the comparison. So again, a big part of that stigma is I should be better. My friend just had a child and she's not going through this. She looks great. She's able to do this. Her child is sleeping through the night. So even the comparison among their mom group can sometimes make them feel ashamed. And so really getting them to go, okay, if we could put all of that on pause, what's your experience? If you were working to reduce the judgment of yourself, what's the truth of what's happening for you? And those can be some very helpful beginning basic steps. And then finding out for them, what support do they have that feels safe? Sometimes the support that they have might not be the support that they need. So identifying, do you have someone? And it's interesting, a lot of them want people that aren't in their circle, that aren't a part of their everyday lives in the beginning. And then as they kind of gain a little bit more confidence, will allow people close to them in. But I think they don't want to be constantly watched, but they want help. So if they have friends that are a little further out, they start reconnecting with them. I think the distance might be safe for some of them in some ways. I want to add to that too. So as a doula, this is Emily, by the way, as a doula, you know, we are those people who are going into people's homes immediately following birth. And so we're kind of like a friend, but then also this professional person who's able to kind of distance a little bit and not have that place of well-meaning, sometimes well-meaning biased, you know, that a sister or a mother may have, but we're able to kind of help them sort through like, okay, so what are your goals for today? And, you know, it's a very interesting dynamic too, because again, we're going into their homes. So they don't have those barriers where they're presenting where like it's childcare, transportation, when am I going to pump? How am I going to pump if I don't have the pump right there or something? We also see a lot of people where they'll be talking about something specifically around like lactation and say something and it just releases something, another emotion that comes through. We recently had this with a mom whose baby was in the NICU for a little bit and she was talking about lactation and she just broke down because nobody was really asking her how she's doing about everything. You know, it was baby this, baby this, baby this, which, right, like it's hard to say that that's not important, but it's also that moms matter and that no one was asking her how she's doing and how she's feeling. So our lactation consultant was finally be like, what do you need? And she was like, okay, I matter too. And that really, I think that kind of just turned something on her head, like, okay, I'm going to take care of myself as well. And so it was before, you know, she even got to the point of other professionals, which was really nice to see, I thought. I can certainly second what Blair said about testing. I think that is not my first approach, but I do think sometimes helping them feel validated and heard and that there is something physical going on as well. Really, I, I'm a scientist at heart, so I always really like help explaining to women why this could be going on or what's happening in their brain and, and sort of what the different parts are from all angles, not just, you know, how I'm feeling, but what, what might lead, be leading to some of those feelings and what are neurotransmitters and really helping them try to begin to understand what it means versus just what I feel. And I think sometimes I know for me, it helps to be able, 
at times to kind of put a, a name to this thing that I'm feeling and to be able to say, here are some very practical ways that I can help myself. I can set meal times for myself and I can sit down and, and figure out when I can eat with a baby on my lap and kind of start to make baby steps for how they can nourish themselves, but by knowing more about what is going on. So Again, I'm always one to feel like if knowledge is power, if we understand some of what is going on, then we can better help move ourselves forward along the healing process. Thank you so much, Catherine. Sharice touched on this a little bit. I would love to dive into a little bit more just a discussion of the stigma in our society and in our country around really it's mental health in general. Obviously, today we are specifically talking about perinatal mental health conditions. But it just in general, mental health, there's such a stigma, there's such a, a fear of being labeled in certain ways and, and how that impacts who you are as a person. Why do you feel these stigmas exist? I think it's kind of interesting to think of it from a historical perspective, but I just would love your opinions in general. And do you feel that it's getting better? Why do I think it exists? You know, when I think about historically, if we're just at least focused on kind of Western civilization, Moms at that time, early on, only had to focus on their children. And I am in no way saying that that was a season where life was completely easy and simple, but there were maybe multiple aspects of what mothers today manage in many different layers that may not have been there in the same capacity. So you have historically, they didn't have to potentially work about also being a working mom there was more of a collective in terms of where people were located. So we're also talking about maybe moms who lived close to family members. They were also embedded in a system where there was support. But at the same time, that messaging has also created this pervasive, in order to be a good mom, you're supposed to look good, feel good. Your house is supposed to be perfectly clean. Your hair is supposed to be actually washed, done, showered, and all those good things. And then have dinner handmade and on the table by 5.30 and dressed up again. And you see it reflected in pictures and it's further exasperated in messages. Even some of our top, I'm using air quotes, influencers around motherhood focus on, I'm going to tell you today how you can do things better. Here are five tips that you, you, right? So it's always focused still on here's what you're not doing well enough, but because I have it down, I'm now going to show you. So it's these silent yet really large pieces that are constantly in your mind of, I'm not good enough if I can't meet that picture. So I can't let someone know I'm struggling because these people aren't letting anyone know that they're struggling and I won't measure up. So I think it's very hidden and indirect. We just have too few people being honest about every picture and every moment with your child is not beautiful and cute and funny and they're clean. And we don't all have amazing and phenomenal husbands who help so that we can take a bubble bath early. And then you add all the media where you're getting even more of that. So at least before you were only maybe comparing yourself to the, the few women who lived up and down your street. Now you've got thousands of women to all compare what they're doing and what they're looking like compared to you. And within minutes, you're already taking a fragile mind and, and just kind of lowering. The other piece that I want to add from a maybe more cultural standpoint is, I know I'll speak to myself. I was raised by a single mom. So I watched a mother who had no choice but to be and do everything at this intense pace in order to survive. 
And so if you're watching that, it also then becomes this automatic, not so much of I have to match that, but that's the pace. That's the piece to esteem to. So even when you have a spouse, if that is, you know, part of what you get to next, there's still this weird, you're not supposed to help. Like if my mom could do all of this on her own, so we're also comparing ourselves against our mothers, then I should be able to handle all of this fine. So I think it's just pervasive and a lot of shoulds and a lot of comparison. This is Blair. Also, it made me think about how, at least culturally, in the way I was raised in my family, it's just the single unit. You're not involving multi-generational or multi-family help, and you're expected to do it all and not be diverting um, support in the area. One of my favorite preschool programs that we enrolled our children in was called Spanish for Fun. In speaking with the teachers and speaking from their Latinx backgrounds, of they were just like, we just don't understand why you don't live with your family. And it might seem like a blessing. We're joking about family right before this call of not living with family. But in some ways, yeah, we're really geared toward just this nuclear isolated unit and that idea of it takes a village. I mean, you're trying to build a village because inherently in our society, it's supposed to be fairly isolated. And then also when I'll speak to the other side of that about if, you know, even if you have your village around, they're still going to be giving these influences like, oh, my boys slept on their backs or on their stomachs as babies. It must mean that your baby needs to sleep on their stomach too. And it's like, well, no. And so then you're a new mom, you're doubting yourself, you're running on lack of sleep, but you're having to then defend your choices. And a choice like that, science is on your side. But what about if you decide that you want to give formula because your milk supply isn't as good or, you know, isn't where it needs to be in order for baby's weight gain. And you're having to defend your choices that you're not totally confident in. And it just, it creates this a really hard dynamic for new moms to defend themselves all the time when they don't even know if what they're doing is really the right thing. So that's when that, you know, the support network around them is just so key because they can rely on others who are in the same space as them to help them be like, this is the right thing I'm doing. And other people like, yes, you know what you're doing. You are the mom. You have got this. A huge thank you to our sponsor and a great friend and supporter of Her Health Collective, Renee Avis. Renee has been such a treasure to both Cindy and I as we navigate mothering daughters. And Renee has just been such a, a lifeline in that. Yes. And it's been wonderful getting to know Renee because she's got daughters that are a bit older, like my girls. And we've connected on that tutors, body image, electronics, you know, all that stuff. All the things. All the things. Renee is a licensed professional counselor and the founder of the Confident Moms Raising Confident Girls coaching program. Renee is fantastic at helping moms identify and understand the roadblocks that keep them from feeling and being confident. There are so many amazing aspects to Renee's programs, but one of my personal favorites is how she guides moms on how to listen to, honor, and take care of our own bodies. Our children, especially our girls, are always watching, and this is such an important piece for moms to tackle and is something I'm always thinking about as I know my own daughter is watching me. Absolutely. This has been really helpful for me as I've navigated my own body image issues, as well as our girls coming into the age of being more aware of their bodies. I also love that she teaches moms how to connect with their daughters in authentic ways. Pre-teenhood. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
this is something that can become harder and harder as our daughters get older. Become a member of Confident Moms Raising Confident Girls Facebook group. You can also sign up for a phone call with Renee to see if the Confident Moms Raising Confident Girls coaching program is a fit for you. The link to sign up is included in the show notes. I just got PTSD from my mother-in-law and my mom giving completely conflicting information with my newborns. <laughs> yeah, my my story was uh, factual from my past experience. So I wanted to add to, I think Cherie started for a moment talking about sort of like our lives are too full and full in a certain way, right? Why is it becoming more and more of an issue? I feel like we have way too many things on our plate. And again, opinion, right? Is that we require so much of ourselves that in addition to all these other pressures that we're talking about now, we've got older kids who are doing soccer because they should start doing soccer at age five, right? And then they're also doing basketball. And then we've got to take this kid somewhere and I should have Pinterest worthy dinners on the table all the time. And my kids aren't eating vegetables. And so I should be working on that. Right. And so there's all these extra layers of things. And again, I hate the word should. That's the first thing I work with people on is getting rid of that word. But I do feel like we have way too many just things on our calendar that instead of embracing kind of like we've been talking about with other aspects, different cultures that, that will just take a few months off and be a mom and, and take longer than that, a lot of months off and be a mom, right? And instead we try and layer on 18 million things on ourselves in addition to this huge new role that we have. This is Sharice. I'll add one more thing. In terms of, is it getting better? I believe there's a push for it to get better, but we still have a very long way to go because we have pockets of individuals that are starting to get the message out there, but we also have systems in terms of the amount of maternity leave that's possible if you're full-time and if it's available that is still so inconsistent and doesn't provide much like Catherine's talking about the opportunity for a mother to get extended time off with a percentage of income. Very few companies give paternal leave, which is equally as important to helping the mood of the mom knowing that they have the support of the father and the person that they care for next and can say, don't say that to me, unlike what they might want to say, you know, to a mother-in-law. So I believe we still have a, a long way to go in that aspect. And the only other thing I would say is most people still don't look for the information until after they've hit rock bottom, you know, so we haven't quite, in my opinion, gotten to the point where young moms are looking for the perinatal mood book, just like they're looking for the baby wise or what to expect when you're expecting those aren't on equal platforms yet. It's not happening until they're a year out, not doing better, had to stop working can't get out of bed. And then they go find all these resources and say, oh, I wish I would have known about this earlier. I want to jump in about the postpartum planning. So right, our, our doula clients, they're talking about what they want their birth to look like, what they're going to wear during the birth, what type of comfort measures they're going to have, what type of medications, but there's less focus on, okay, so you just had the baby. Now what? So one of the big things that we do with all of our clients is we have them do some postpartum planning. Uh, there was a study that said 15 minutes of anticipatory planning on the postpartum period decreases mood disorders by 20%. And just having these conversations of like, what's real life going to happen when this baby comes home? And more than just, okay, where are they going to sleep? Like, what are, how much am I going to be bleeding, for example? Or what's it going to be like with hair loss? Or what do I do when it's challenging? Um, so we are huge proponents of postpartum planning and it doesn't have to be written down. It doesn't have to be, you know, like on a nice Pinterest worthy board with everything, but just having these conversations with the people that matter, like when I don't seem right, 
who can I reach out to? When I don't seem right, like who do I reach out to? When I'm having feeding troubles, who's at IBCLC who takes my insurance that can help? But so just having those conversations prenatally are a huge difference so that they're not Googling in the middle of the night, who takes my insurance, who can help me? Amazing, amazing points that you all have just made. As you were talking, I was thinking about when I was preparing for our first child. Those are just things that you don't think about. They're things that you... you you say to yourself, oh, that's not going to happen to me. I'm not, I'm not going to be that person. Just like I was thinking I was going to have my house clean when I had kids. <laughs> you know, all of these things that you just go into it and you're just so naive because you've never experienced it before. So talking like this is a great way to raise the awareness as well as having programs like Emily's business has where they've got that support to start providing that education. Another key recommendation that has been given to raise awareness and improve treatment of maternal mental health conditions is to offer more routine screenings. How do we make screenings more accessible to all mothers? Well, Postpartum Support International recommends that everybody who comes in contact with a postpartum person, they recommend that they do the screening. The problem is, who? how do you interpret that if you don't necessarily know, you know, like, what are the signs that there is something going on. And I think the other issue is like, as Chrissy was saying, when she was at the pediatrician, she's filling out the form and she checks the answer that she thinks it should be because is the pediatrician going to be her provider? Is the pediatrician really going to look at her and be like, okay, I have 15 minutes to do all my new baby screening, but then also check in with mom. So yeah, PSI says anybody who comes in contact with somebody should be doing the screening. So that's just, I think, one way to start. And even if you don't necessarily know how to, quote, read it, you can still be like, okay, here's the screening. If there's questions, go talk to somebody else. And here's a list of people to talk to. I would love to see a move towards, say, encouraging or empowering partners or spouses to screen. Um, I also feel like the subjective information between this is what mom is saying and this is what the other person is seeing would be a very valuable comparison and maybe help balance, okay, well, I have what you said and I have what your partner said. And let's talk about how these are different and, and how, where do you think that's coming from for them? Because sometimes that also takes away the like, okay, well, since they kind of know, I'll go ahead and say something so that when people do go to prenatal classes or different aspects that we definitely empower and encourage and help spouses understand more the role that they can play in being an extra set of eyes and noticing because they're closest to that individual and they'll have hopefully, you know, one of the best perspectives on, you know, this is how she was then. And this is what I'm seeing now without just going, oh, well, everybody just said she's like that. I'm just let her do her thing. And I stay out of her way. I hear that so often from dads, especially when other sisters or aunts or grandparents come in, you get out of the way. But I really feel like having them be a part of things would be a very helpful way of, of getting collective information. I absolutely love that idea, Sharice. Um, I, I do think that that would be so beneficial on so many levels. Again, referring to my own personal experience to have that other 
viewpoint of someone that's in the thick of it with you and and just sharing that. This uh, next question kind of stems a little bit with what Emily had started talking about. The National Perinatal Association encourages comprehensive training and education in perinatal mental health for all healthcare providers who serve families during the perinatal and postpartum period. They feel that healthcare providers should all know the signs and symptoms and be familiar with treatment options as it relates to their scope of practice. Do you feel that this is a realistic goal? And what other steps need to be taken in order to change those current statistics of women going undiagnosed and without help? Um, this is Blair. I'm thinking of as before I was the current functional medicine group, I've been with family practices and in internal medicine. And I'm thinking about the screening questionnaires that you're asked when you see someone and here are the questionnaires they need to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like while it is important to still, because you might be the only one who's potentially screening, what end entity is going to be most helpful in this regard. And if you're if it's the only person, it's almost like we should be asking our dentist to also be screening really as, as many providers as possible, because when it is in that insurance structure where it's potentially 15 minutes to do everything from, are you in a postpartum cardiovascular bleeding crisis, blood pressure, lactate's it ends up being too many things that we're asking within these very short encounters. I love the idea of what um, when Sharice was saying, there's ways that we can implement and bring in others, but then also this movement towards that there should be more insurance covered home visits. There just needs to be more time with eyes on patient um, more frequently in that early postpartum. We talked about some of those perinatal postpartum risks being high at the, our last talk, potentially lobbying for more coverage for more eyes more often on the patient. And then, yeah, let's get our dentists involved in screening as well. Everybody needs to be asking. And just as I think Catherine mentioned, or just even if that provider is not sure of what to do with that, if it is that pediatrician, as you're saying, um, to, to be prepared with, that's okay. But I'm glad that we have this information to make appropriate referrals and recommendations. Yeah, I definitely don't think those expectations are realistic. It's it's very difficult to say that a PA, a DO, or an MD can be responsible for all the systems of the body, um, as well as being able to intricately understand the nuances of what this needs. Then, you know, much like Blair said, you have this really small period of time in order to collect a lot of information. So typically you're going to focus on what's kind of screening the loudest. The other piece that I want to add, and it's not a knock against men, but the medical field is also predominantly male. So that aspect of them not having that direct experience. And I know that we do sometimes, of course, crossover into experiences that are different than our gender, but that's a very unique piece of also going, here is something very vulnerable that even though I may love my male doctor, I may not feel like he would fully understand or take it seriously, or they may even unconsciously minimize the information that is is being told. So I think even that for some can be a potential barrier of it not being given the same amount of attention from just lack of understanding, from not having the ability to have a parent and understand and have a child and all those hormonal shifts and how different you feel after that process. Um, because the more we have a, some form of understanding around an issue, we are more likely to see it in a different light and, and spend time talking about it. Sharice had brought up one idea that was to help our 
our partners become more educated and more aware to recognize when there's something that might be off with our partner. But let's take this and go a little bit further outside of the medical arena, going a little bit deeper in terms of beyond our partner, but on a societal level. What shifts do you think would be beneficial here in the United States with our approach to the postpartum period and caring for mothers? Doulas for everyone. <laughs> yes. I agree with that. <laughs> well, all maybe covered by insurance doulas. Well, and insurance, I mean, so we're in talks right now of getting insurance coverage for doulas, but the problem is it's just, they reimburse at such a low rate that it's really like, it's just a financial burden then on the doulas again to more time away from our families, more time. It just is a challenging thing right now, but Hopefully starting July, North Carolina is going to have some doulas covered by insurance. But yeah, I think one is about to your point of like getting society ready for it or, um, you know, like training partners, we send out an email to both partner and birthing person at about like 35 weeks of like, this is what a mood disorder looks like. And here are resources to get help if it becomes an issue so that it's saved in their email. They don't necessarily have to talk about it, but the information is there and it'll kind of help trigger both of them that if something doesn't feel right, they have the information there. They don't necessarily have to deal with it at that time, but they have the information there. And we've had a bunch of people reach out and say, you know, reply to the email and say like, okay, how can I get connected with a therapist prenatally? So that again, not Googling in the middle of the night who a therapist is that can help. And that's been really beneficial for our clients. We've talked a lot about therapy and we haven't really talked about it much, but obviously medication is often a very common form of treatment. I would be interested to know what you guys think about support groups and supportive communities, mom, friends, just a, a village mentality. How beneficial, how helpful is that to a, a woman, a new mom in, in the thick of the mental health challenges. Well, I was just going to say, this is Blair, how one of the best things about these types of panels is what I learned from the other panel members. Whereas my experience was supportive in, let's say that prenatal and yoga community with Cherie springing up the comparisons and how that can be not helpful. I thought it goes back to, it's not a one size fits all and that it's the awareness of, okay, here are our potential options. But if you are experiencing the comparisons or if you're finding, this is why people feel worse about themselves spending time scrolling on social media, that there are other options. And I'm excited to hear what Cherie says. I think it does depend on the person. When a mom is in the thick of, I don't feel good for myself. They often speak of not wanting to be seen. So if those friends weren't established prior to their challenges, it's typically like, hey, this isn't the me that I want to introduce to new people. So there can be this resistance to getting into spaces when you feel like, I'm a mess. Who would want to be around this? So, you know, if I'm working with somebody that's pregnant, we definitely work to build that community ahead of time. One piece of mom friends that just in my work with clients that I found very valuable is actually connecting them with a mother that is beyond the season where they are, because that reduces the comparison of, oh my gosh, I'm not doing that. She's doing that. I'm not doing that. You know, when it's too close, yes, there can be a very tiny bit of, wow, there's someone there who is right along with me, but really you have a game of tennis and usually they either spread apart or they both sink together. But when they're with a mom who is outside of their season, you know, they're able to kind of speak and go, oh, 
I remember that you're exhausted, aren't you? This is so hard. Please rest. I wished I would have rested more. So you have someone that's in a different season that you go, okay, they've got kids. They're still alive. They smell normal. Their hair's washed. This is not going to last forever. Okay. Right. Seriously. It's motivation to go. All right. I get myself back at some moment. And then that older mom has those experiences that she is totally comfortable sharing because she's removed. And then they laugh and go, oh, okay, you're right. I'm doing fine. Because that story that you just told me, that top, what I said, and it just helps normalize it and create some support. And I find that that is typically someone that they'll go to more than the peer their age when they're like, how's your board? My board is fine. How's your IG? I just updated mine and got a new cat, right? So there's still that, that piece there, but that's just from my own experiences with the clients and communities that I've served. Mrs. Blair is speaking off of what Sharice just said. It's, re- it's recalling a dear friend whose children are about 10 years older than mine. And honestly, she said it actually gets older problems, different problems. And she would tell me, oh, this is, no, 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 this is good. This is actually good. And even even though I could see how that was negative and not maybe that like, oh, that was hard. It actually did make me slow down and say, oh, wait, this is actually the easy time. And this is supposed to be chaos and a mess. And I need to enjoy this because it's for her. She was like bigger, bigger kids, bigger problems. So my might not have been her intent to be scaring me into feeling good, but it did help. <laughs> I'm going to laugh and my friend will probably listen to this. So she has a five-year-old and I've been in her life since her little one was born. And so I remember one day, you know, she was like, she won't go to sleep. You know, she's throwing a tantrum or something like that. And I was like, well, you can come have this conversation with my teen about safe sex. And she was like, you know what? I'm <laughs> right. going to go grab my baby and some goldfish and I will talk to you later. So yeah, it is, it is a joke to go. It's hard. It is so hard. But man, I would love when my 19 year old comes to me to go, want some grape juice and goldfish and to watch a show. (laughs) So as hard as it is, try the best you can, you know, not to belittle it, but it just does feel like you're right, you're right, you're right. I can do this. And so it just makes light of it um, in that way. Gosh, I love that so much. That whole conversation is so true. That's Cindy for me. Her her girls are, you know, a, a, quite a bit older than my daughter. And I come to her all the time. She, she does uh, probably daily. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> um, and it is, it's so helpful to have someone in that next stage of motherhood. I absolutely love that. All of you are present to discuss this topic because you directly support women and you know how important the work is around maternal mental health. There are people listening who may have concerns because a person they care about is showing symptoms that we've been discussing today. Do you have some beloved resources that you like to share where someone should go first for help? And also, I would love just discussion of your interpretation of the next steps for a a partner or someone with someone they love and how they can go about encouraging a loved one to get screening, even if they're unsure if, if it's the baby blues or a more severe issue that's happening, that can be a tricky line to walk. So how, do, how does a partner or loved one approach that? My uh, go-to resource for everyone is Postpartum Support International. 
I, they're just, everything on there is fantastic. They have support groups, online support groups for every stage of life around motherhood. And the support groups, I was able to sit in on one um, last week. And it was a really challenging one to listen to, but just the level of community in the group was really amazing. When COVID hit and everything became virtual, it kind of made it seem like, oh, well, this isn't going to be as good. And maybe I just got lucky with this support group, but I felt like the fact that it was virtual made it again, like a little bit of disconnect from the other people. So it wasn't that they were able to see these people on a daily basis, and they could say how they really felt and say they were angry and they were mad and they were hurt and not feel like, oh, well, I'm going to run into this person at Harris Teeter when I go out and, you know, she might have her hair washed or something and I won't be put together because these people are all in different states. It was across the whole U.S. It was a really amazing group to sit in. So that's my go-to recommendation for everyone, postpartum sport international. So I'll jump in and I would say in terms of a partner or loved one, I typically encourage them to show, don't tell. So often there is this push to tell them, you need to go get help. You need to go get help. You need to go get help. You need to take this screening. But they actually have more of an opportunity to impact what the mom is experiencing if they go and get support. So they're in a place where it will be excellent for them to, to reach out and do research of their own or go and seek the support of a therapist and say, I am here to support the mother of my child who is going through X, Y, and Z. Here's what I'm suspecting. So that gives them an opportunity to talk through how helpless they might feel, how unsure they might feel. They're maybe not doing anything because they're afraid that they're going to do the wrong thing. And so that provider can actually help them work through some tangible things that they can implement to bring the stress down in the house first and then get them to a place where that mom may be more likely to reach out or to be honest once there aren't so many things firing off. Because a lot of times I see the mom is very aware of how she feels, but she's also very aware of everything that she wants accomplished and on her to-do list. And it's, I won't take care of me until all these things are taken care of. So if a partner and loved one depending upon their resources, can go, I'm going to go take over dinner. We're going to have somebody come in and clean once a week, you know, and take some of those pieces that keeps them scrambling away. They're typically more likely to go, okay, I thought it was keeping up with everything that was making me feel, you know, like I am. Some of those things are gone. And I have to admit, I still feel really bad. So I need to say something. So you're eliminating some excuses. You're showing some tangible support that doesn't require them to do anything because doing anything other than waking up may be too much. And then you work your way towards just continuing to support them. And you'll know that time that you can gently say, hey, are you okay? I actually have some great support if you would ever like to come with me. So then it's, this is not about you, but I did this for me. Well, I guess, yeah, it might be good for me to go and just kind of see. And so it's just a gradual aspect. What provider would someone go to first? Oftentimes a mother might feel just paralyzed. I don't feel right, but I don't even know where to begin. If a woman was listening to this and she said, yes, this is me, this is me. Should she go to a mental health professional? Should she go to a, a doctor's office? Should she go see support from a postpartum doula? Where do they start first? I think it's still appropriate to where to, to ensure that everyone knows that it is still completely appropriate to be seeing 
your OBGYN. It is still appropriate to see that primary care provider that maybe you haven't seen in a year, especially if you're in that situation where it is analysis paralysis, Googling fatigue, network providers, and maybe for financial reasons, it must be covered right then. Because typically part of your gynecologist and your family practice provider are going to have in-house referrals teams who can do some of the legwork and looking at your insurance to find who's in your network to connect with counselors. Instead of that perfect situation where you know, I'm not going to be spending a lot of time with this primary care provider, internist, or OBGYN, but they are my quickest, fastest, easiest route to get to Sharice, right? That I think is still important. And it's possible that if there is a friend or a loved one who already has a counselor that you like, hey, I've heard you mention that you go sit down and talk to Sue every few weeks. What was her last name again? Send me her website because, you know, maybe connect. There might be within your, hopefully within your network. Network, all of us are connected with fabulous counselors. I would also add going to see anybody that you trust, right? Like maybe you had a bad experience with your OB and going back there is going to trigger like postpartum PTSD. So you don't want to go back there, but maybe you had a great experience with a dietitian prior. If it's somebody who specializes and works in maternal health, they're going to have resources to connect you. So even if it's not necessarily the mental health field, you're still going to get connected with somebody through networks, just like just like the Her Collective, right? We have this great group of professionals who we can refer to, even if we don't know them directly. You know, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a physician's assistant, but I know people now who I can refer to. And so really reaching out to anybody, it doesn't even have to be the professional that fit, checks the box of mood disorders, because we know people. Well, speaking for myself, I've absolutely loved this conversation. It's It's been such a joy to sit with all of you and receive your feedback and hear what you have to say on this really important topic. With We have one more question for you all. I'm asking on behalf of everyone that's listening to this podcast. The people that are listening may have a passion for this topic and would like to make an impact in some way by bringing awareness to the issue and in some way influencing change. Do you have any feedback? back on how someone listening can get involved and make a difference? As far as with lobbying and awareness and kind of moving those structural barriers, I'd point them to Every Woman Counts. I mean, ever since being connected through her collective to them, it's an amazing network for digging in, fundraising, and trying to reach whether it's that one or that broader audience. I I don't, did I say Every Woman Counts? Every Mother Counts. I think also a big thing is be the friend that you wish you had when you were dealing with that. And if that just means like, you know, someone up the block who just had a baby, drop off some food, right? Like it doesn't have to be some huge step because right, we're all busy. It's still taking time away from our families and adding right another check mark or another to do item on our never ending to do list. But it can feel just so easy to see somebody who's struggling or you know, just at the playground, like, hey, I'll hold your dog while you take care of your kid, right? Like it doesn't have to be these huge actionable steps that make an impact. Just being the friend you wish you had when you were struggling with that time. Yeah, I love both of those. There are so many different ways. I I feel like it's very important for a mom to first ask themselves, where do I want to help? Why and how much time do I have? You know, as moms, I feel like we can also be very passionate and then we create this big movement and go... (gasps) Why did I take all this on, right? So the heart is beautiful and then manage the appetite is what I will say. And then... (laughs) 
decide what can I do that's sustainable. And, and, you know, like Emily is talking about, it might be just being the friend that I wish that I had, or much like Blair's talking about going to every mother's counts and saying, well, what's, what else is already out there that I could be a part of? Or it might be a mom who says, I'm going to pull together just a list of resources amongst myself and other women that I know closely so that we have a network of resources that we trust and let's just share it and and start space to talk about and to be honest. And I think one of the most powerful things we can always do is to hold honest conversation and move towards authenticity around what's really happening in our lives. And that doesn't make you a downer because a lot of times people will say, I don't want to share because I don't want to bring people down. But just being able to interject and be honest when someone says, how are you? It's been a rough week versus I'm fine. How are you? Just those little pieces can all turn the tide in really big ways. We do have one final question. This is a Her Circle member question. Is there a time frame for when perinatal disorders can be diagnosed? For example, I felt fine at the six-week visit, but four months in, I find myself sad and frustrated. I don't know if it's hormonal or just the realization of a lack of family support. I'm not sure. I think that not only is it certainly within a time period, but then I think it also doesn't have to be a silver bullet where it is just one thing because it's usually multifactorial. And then in those realizations, it also means you probably need first that trusted person, right? Um, as Emily so eloquently said, but then building out that team to realize, well, maybe Catherine I need to spend time with Catherine Andrews to look at my nutrition. And maybe I need to have time with Sharice. And Blair loves her testing. So if I'm really interested in my hormone levels, then I'm going to connect with Blair um, on a functional medicine perspective. So it's more oftentimes not one simple thing, but a myriad of things. Yeah, I would echo and say, you know, typically if we look at diagnostically, it says, and I use again air quotes for those who are listening, a year, but at the baseline, as a mother, anytime you're in need of support, it's never too late. And so regardless of whether or not it's been four months or five years or 10 years, and you are not feeling like yourself from some aspect, then reach out and get support. But it's not uncommon. And that's also a part of how it does get missed is some people have a delayed on set. So they do pay a lot of attention in those first six to eight weeks. And then they think, well, I'm good. I'm past that. It didn't happen to me. So then when it happens outside of that time, they don't connect it if that's even it. But again, there's so many different aspects to what it's like raising a child or how you know your life changes, how your body changes, how your energy changes, that it's always just a good opportunity to have a support system, both personal and professional, if that's possible, that can stay aware of what you're experiencing. And it's never too late and never too small of a challenge to reach out and say, I don't think I'm okay. Thank you so much. We are extremely grateful to all of you for joining us today in this very important discussion. It is only through continued education, continued conversations that we're able to shed light on issues like perinatal mental health. So thank you all for taking time out of your very busy schedules to join us. And we look forward to next time. Our quarterly roundtables bring the HER expert panelists together to share their knowledge and discuss important health topics that affect mothers. In this discussion, we unmask perinatal mental health conditions 
As stated in the episode, between 20 to 25% of women experience some type of perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, and there are many women who go undiagnosed, even though they feel like something isn't right. It's our hope that shedding light on this topic and having open discussions like this will help reduce the number of women who are silently struggling. There was so much information packed into this episode, but we rounded up three key highlights for you. Number one, there is a difference between baby blues and postpartum depression. Many people think that baby blues are simply a less extreme version of postpartum depression, but this is not the case. As many as 80% of new moms experience baby blues, such as having emotional shifts and due to fatigue of caring for a new infant, perhaps not taking care of themselves as they should. This could last days to weeks postpartum. Postpartum depression, however, is deeper and more profound. A woman is sad, hopeless, crying more often, and is potentially not bonding with her child. She has difficulty caring for herself that can manifest into anxiety and panic attack. Many times, when there's a history of depression, it raises a red flag, as well as if the new mother discontinued medications and or support before the baby. A woman experiencing postpartum depression needs to be taken care of by providers to begin feeling more like herself. Number two, many women hide or downplay the symptoms they are experiencing, and there are numerous reasons for doing this. Perhaps the symptoms bring up feelings of shame. If she wasn't feeling this way before the baby, then she may feel like she's failing at motherhood. A woman may begin to think the symptoms will go away, so the way she's feeling is minimized. Or perhaps it's even minimized by a partner, spouse, or others she comes in contact with by hearing, every mother goes through this. Then they doubt what they know to be true. Another possibility is if a woman has multiple children, she may feel that she doesn't have time to deal with it. These are just a handful of scenarios for why a woman may choose to hide her symptoms. But without receiving adequate support and treatment, there may be some immediate and long-term consequences. An immediate result may include having difficulty bonding or being present with her baby and other family members. Some long-term effects could include an increase in severity of symptoms and not noticing when they get worse. It's super important to remember that it's never too late to reach out and get help. Number three, there's a stigma attached to perinatal mental health conditions. According to our experts, there's been a small push towards improving the stigma, but there's still a long way to go. Many people aren't getting the information about perinatal mental mood disorders until after they've hit rock bottom. We haven't gotten to the point where moms are looking for the perinatal mood book, just like they're looking for the what to expect when you're expecting book. They aren't on equal platforms yet. Women aren't looking for them until a year out when they don't feel well, and then say, oh, I wish I had known about this earlier. Postpartum planning is just as important as prenatal, pregnancy, and birth planning. Oh my gosh, it was so hard to stop there. I felt like there were many important points to highlight from this episode. Here's a great thing. The episode is here for you to listen to as many times as you'd like. Okay, shh. I'm offering a little extra credit material from the episode. If you want to help someone, you need to remember. Cherise said, the heart is beautiful and then manage the appetite. What she means by this is only do what you can manage. Holding honest conversations is huge. One way to do this is to share this episode with a fellow mom who could benefit from all its goodness. Hi, five friends. We had so much fun with you. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review. We love hearing what you have to say. Until next time, stay true to you.